Hi, this is Stephen Ambrose, Senior Pastor at Wapaknas. I want to welcome you to the Wapaknas podcast. We hope and pray that this message goes deep into your DNA, is encouraging, relevant to your life, a means for you to engage with God and experience His love, and moves you to impact your world. We at Wapaknas believe firmly that you matter to God. We are glad that you are taking the risk to engage with Him today. Wapaknas is love people loving people to Jesus, and it takes people to partner with us to be on mission and bring this message to our community, the region, and the world. If you would like to financially partner with Wapaknas to love people to Jesus, join us by going to our website at wapaknas.org and becoming a financial partner. We thank you, we pray for you, we love you, and enjoy the message. Good morning. Well, I will admit it's been a while since I've seen you all. But I would say it is good to be back among friends, dare I say family. There's certain places you walk into where you just go, man, that smell, the people, the ugly orange carpet. So good to be in the house of God. Well, In case you don't know me, as Nikki so graciously introduced, I'm Noah. Uh, A while back, I was an intern here about a year ago. Uh, Actually, right around a year, I just finished my internship here, and I I left you all to go finish my last year at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. I finished, just in case you didn't know. Um, Thank you, thank you. Some other stuff also happened. I got married. My wife is right there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And it's it's been an interesting summer. We moved down to Dayton, Ohio. She's at Kettering College studying a doctorate of occupational therapy. Ladies and gentlemen, I got a smart wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm... Currently pursuing a MDiv at uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, so that kind of takes up my time right now, and I'm still looking for a pastor's job, and that's taking up a lot of my time, my worry right now, as you can imagine. As I quickly learned that one needs money when they move out of their parents' household and can't just like store it all up while their parents pay for other things. And so uh, I have quickly been learning lessons in life that I hope I will never forget, and I assume I will never forget. But it is good to be among you. Uh, I have missed this place since leaving, and I think of you all often. Um, And if you are new here, hi. I'm sure I will think of you as well after today. But, um, so, in beginning... We're going to court today, and some of you might look at me like, oh, court. I got got a court summons over the summer uh, to Lucas County Court Office because I was a registered voter, and I finally got picked for jury duty. Um, Luckily, I moved, so I didn't have to go. Uh, (laughs) Take that. Um, But we're going to a different kind of court today. Uh, This is not a court that you would maybe recognize it has elements of maybe courts that we we look at you know you have a judge and a jury and normally there's a prosecutor who will bring a case against someone they're called a plaintiff or 
they're called the defendant. Sorry, the plaintiff is the prosecutor. Um, they're called the defendant, and then the defendant has a defense attorney. And so you have these kind of elements of a courtroom in the United States, and that's kind of our concept of what a court looks like. Uh, this court is very different in that it, in, it's wide in its scope, and it covers just about everything, and we'll get into what that means in a minute. But uh, today we're going to be in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll be today. And a little bit of context before we begin. Micah's a prophet, and to be a prophet in Israel is to be many things. Um, some of your job was to tell the future, a very small portion of your job. I know when we think of a prophet, it's someone who tells the future. That's part of a prophet's job. It's not the whole uh, job, and it's actually quite a small bit of part of the job. Another part of a prophet's job was to speak the word of God. Obviously, if you were going to be a prophet, you had to have some sort of divine intervention and divine revelation. But a lot of what the prophets did was they spoke to their context of which they were placed in. And what I mean by context is where they were placed in history, where they were placed in culture, where they were placed geographically even. They were meant to speak to those people what God had to say to them. That's the most basic, basic job of a prophet. And a lot of the prophet's time is consumed with calling the people of Israel back to the way that God had intended them to live in the Old Testament. That was found all the way back in the books of Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what's called the Hebrew Torah, which means teaching and law. And so Micah has spent most of his book kind of detailing the problems of his day. He's writing to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the people of God. There's a northern and there's a southern kingdom. And a long time before Micah, they split, unfortunately. And so the northern kingdom was comprised of the ten northern tribes, and the southern kingdom was comprised of the two southern tribes. And so Micah's speaking to the two southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. And so he spends most of his book um, talking about weeping and mourning and God's judgment and Israel's leaders being rebuked. See, there, there was a big problem in Micah's time of Israel's leaders being corrupted. The king was not a good king. The king was not following the ways of God. and said the king would actively encourage the worship of other gods. And the king, and from that would flow corruption of the priests, the priests who were supposed to be God's servants, the religious leaders in, the days, in those days in Israel. And all of that would trickle down into society at large, where you start to see um, persecution of the poor, the rich getting rich on the backs of the poor, and just general recklessness 
and depravity. And so Micah has a bunch of different prophecies and visions in this book, some relating to something in future, some relating to, most relating to his current context. And in Micah chapter 6, you come to this point where Micah just kind of lays it all out. And God tells him to lay it, lay it all out on the line. This is, this is everything that I have found wrong with Israel. This is the main reason I am upset. And so this is what Micah says in chapter 6, verses 1. I'll start reading in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. So when I said we're going to court today, this is what I meant. That God is bringing something against Israel. There's a case going on. It's about to be litigated. And it's not litigated to a necessarily a group of people. It's actually litigated to the whole of creation. That all of creation would hear the voice of God. Because God knows he's right. And God wants all of creation to be his witness to his righteousness. In verse 2, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So in our little courtroom situation, God is actually the prosecutor. And he's going to question Israel. Actually, he's kind of playing prosecutor and defendant, and we'll see him in a minute. He's kind of playing both roles. But he's God, he gets to do that. But God is going to bring something against Israel. Something has happened in the relationship between God and Israel that has not set this relationship right. Actually, it's torn it apart. It's not only torn it apart between God and Israel, it's torn Israel apart from itself. And so this is the charge and kind of the defense that God lays against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey for Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so God kind of takes us, the audience, and the rest of creation on this all-encompassing story of what God has done for Israel and how he has provided for them in the past. And so God, of course, brings up the Exodus story, how he led his people out of slavery from the land of Egypt to a new land in which they currently inhabit. He tells them of how he has sent people, that he has not left them alone, that he has sent people to guide and direct them, that no matter how rebellious or complaining or whining they got, God was always there sending people to direct them back to where they should have been. 
he points out what happened in Moab when Balak, king of Moab, said to Balaam, the prophet, speak curses against these people that they may be destroyed and taken off my land. And when Balaam opened his mouth, all he could speak was blessings, praises among the people of Israel and the God of Israel. And so God is somewhat accusing his people, but even though he doesn't need to, God is also defending himself. God is saying, I have not broken the covenant. Nothing has changed on my part. No, something is different here. And it is different in the actions of the people. And so the narrative shifts in a pretty substantial way to where Micah, the prophet, is now almost musing what he might say. And these are in the prophet's words. And it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my, of my body for the sin of my soul? And so in Micah's musing how he thinks God will be satisfied keeps upping the ante each time if you notice first we'll bow down well and if that doesn't work then we'll sacrifice thousands of rams and then you'll notice he jumps even uh, to a hundredth degree ten thousand rivers of oil actually it's a tenth degree my bad And then he goes all the way, and kind of a callback to the Exodus story a little bit, that should he even offer the firstborn son that he has and slay him on the altar, that he might be forgiven of his sin. And of course we look at that and think that's ridiculous, that no one would willingly offer their firstborn son for sacrifice of their sin. But Israel has been doing this. See, Israel, in thinking that they can appease God, has taken a sacrificial system and stretched it to its limits. Where instead of a good sacrificial system instructing them on how to worship God and how to be in relationship with God and how to be in relationship with each other. Instead, it's more now a transactionary action where to please God, because I've been doing all the things over here, I'm just going to keep shoving sacrifices in hoping that more and more and more will somehow get rid of this anger and wrath and righteous judgment 
But the thing was, Israel kept doing that, but they also kept worshiping the other gods over here. Israel had taken advantage of its privileged position as the people of God. They viewed it something as an inherent birthright, which to a certain degree it was, but much more it was a responsibility. See, they were the visible representation of God on earth. That's what they were supposed to be. That they were God's people, meant to image God to the rest of the nations. That's what, Abra- that's what God tells Abraham in the book of Genesis, that your people shall be a blessing to all the nations. But the issue has become that they have taken this system of sacrifice and have warped it so completely that they think that they can just get away with sacrificing more and more and more and more and further. And let's add 10 rams, now 100 rams, now 500 rams, now 1,000 rams, and let's take all this oil and we'll just pour it on the altar. And Micah's just taking that to its logical conclusion. At what, at what point is it enough? Will the firstborn of your son be enough? And it's, I think it's easy to look at Israel. And I'm, I'm guilty of this, too. To look at the Israelites and say, oh, silly Israelites. How foolish. They, they just didn't get it. Oh, we get it. I get it. You get it, right? I hope you get it. But do we? See, what scares me about this passage is not that Micah's saying it to the Israelites. What scares me about this passage is that Micah might be saying it to me. Have I taken the things that God meant for good and proper worship, that God meant for good and right relationship, and have twisted them so much in my own image that I'm starting to abuse them? Do I look at the written word of God as something to bash over the heads of other people to prove I'm right, rather than a place where I can encounter the living God, the visage of Jesus? Have I taken prayer as some sort of wish fulfillment that whatever I ask of God, he will just give because I ask? Instead of a way of communing with God, that I can bring things to him. And no matter what is in my life, he's promised to be present. Have I taken grace to the extent of well, it doesn't really matter because God's grace is just so infinite that he will forgive me no matter what I do, so I'm just going to keep doing it? 
Instead of grace, instead of the graceful first action of God calling me to a response of humility and action, that because God was gracious enough to forgive me, this now puts the responsibility on me to act toward God. Have we taken the sacraments? Instead of treating them as gifts to God and as gifts from God and as a way to bind us into community, have we taken those and treated them as our birthright? As something we deserve? As something that guarantees me Have we taken faith and instead of treating it as a trusting relationship with God, treat it as a get-out-of-hell-free card? See, that's what scares me the most. And I've preached this passage a few times, and I I find myself coming back to it every now and again, not all the time, but every now and again. But what this passage does is it confronts me with the possibility that even though I think I have all the knowledge and more knowledge that Israel had, And I have Jesus, and listen, Jesus is a game changer, don't get me wrong. He is. But that, just because I'm this side of the cross, doesn't mean I can't do this. That I can't take the things that God has given me in true and proper worship. That I can't take my life that God has given me to be true and proper worship. And twist it. And twist it to the point where this really just becomes about appeasement and all about me. And as long as I'm somewhat of a good person, I'll just figure it out. And I operated in that space for a long time. I don't know, I can't point to you exactly when uh, I came out of this mindset. I don't know if there's like a moment in, in time that I can point like, oh, January 27th, 2021, that's when, no, I can't do that. But it seems that the Holy Spirit has been kind of leading me to a point Of where I have to take my faith serious enough. And at a certain point, it becomes, are you going to lay the chips down and go all in? 
And that's a hard thing to reconcile. It really is. Because it demands so much. That God just doesn't want your money or your house or the things you might possess. But God really just wants you and all that follows after. God's not playing a shell game like I think we sometimes like to imagine he is. He's not playing some money switch or he's not going to switch it out on you. It's really quite simple. God wants you. And so Isaiah kind of reflects this in what he says next. He says in verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so, what Micah kind of does in my imagination, this is my imagination, this, I'm not basing this on any biblical scholarship, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't confuse that. But this is what I imagine Micah's kind of doing. He's, he's taking all of the Hebrew Torah, all of the Hebrew teaching, um, how they view themselves in relation to God, and he's, he kind of pins it in three separate points. And he takes a system of 613-ish laws, and he kind of puts them all into three categories. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus will do the same thing later. He'll take the whole Hebrew Torah, he'll, he'll bring it down just to two, so he's got Micah beat there. But these, these three things are they're kind of broad. And they're meant to be. They have to kind of encompass life for us. But as I look at this passage, to act justly, what does that mean? What does it mean to act justly? So we're going we're gonna to take a minute. We're going we're gonna to go with some philosophy real quick. And don't worry, I'm not going to get in the weeds. I know some of you just got big eyes. So don't, don't worry, we're not going to get in the weeds. It's just very, very basic. What is just? What does it mean to act justly? What is justice? And so when, when we think about that, I think oftentimes we, we say God is just. We kind of just leave it at that. God, God is just. What does that mean? What are you saying when you say God is just? I'm not, and I think most people unintentionally think of it this way, that God is just another just, like, is a just being in the universe. That God is holden to some standard of justice. That's not exactly what I think Christianity means when, or maybe others would take us to say that, we think God is just that he's acting according to some standard of justice. That's not what Christianity means when it says God is just. Christianity means when it says God is just. That God is 
justice. God is the very standard of ju- To be just is to be God. You cannot separate the two. God sets the very standard of justice for all of reality. And so if we want to look at what to act justly means, we need to look at God. More specifically, I think we need to look at God in the flesh. And for humans to act justly, it would make sense to look at what God does in the human form in order to see what requires justice for humanity. And we think of justice as often a corrective action, which it is. But I think we forget that justice seeks correction, but for the good of the other. So what does that mean? Well, to do justice would then be to seek the good of my neighbor. To do justice would mean to seek the welfare of all people, of all socioeconomic status, of all race, creed, and tribe. And of course, Jesus does this all the time. But justice needs to be connected to love. Justice without love is just harsh punishment. And I'm not sure it does anybody any good. Now, sometimes love can be harsh, but in the Bible, that's often a rare circumstance, I find. And so justice doesn't mean that when I see someone something doing wrong, I bash them over the skull with my Bible and say, stop acting like a fool. Although sometimes it requires that, I won't lie. But in the overall majority of cases, justice means in love, I seek the good of the other. And what form that ever may take. Now, we live in a complicated world. That's complex. And so, that's why I think the next line is so important. That because we live in a complicated and complex world, we also are to love mercy. Now, some would say mercy is actually the opposite of justice. And to some degree it is, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. And whenever I think of mercy, I always think of, my mind goes to a picture of Christ on the cross. And Christ is hanging there, dying, And my mind always goes to the painting of um, the artist named Grudenwald. 
and he and he, I've shown this picture in this church before, where Christ is. It's it's one of my favorite depictions because I think it just shows the overall, just absolute suffering that Christ went to. You just look at him on that cross, and he's gaunt, he's scarred, he's dirty. Right, it's meant to project the humanness of Christ. There are other depictions that represent more Christ's divinity on the cross, but this is a very human depiction of Christ. And he just looks tired and worn down and just basically to the point of death, which he probably was at the time. And he is actually being unjustly executed. And if anybody has a right to justice in a certain point of history, it's Christ at that moment. Because Christ is innocent of the things they accused him of. But he was a threat, so they put him on the cross anyway. So if anyone has a right to justice, it's Christ. But what's amazing to me when I think of that photo is that Christ would hang there on that cross and have the strength and mercy to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's an amazing statement. I don't think I would say that statement if I was hanging on a cross. I might say something like, wait till the Lord gets you in that day. Call down lightning and fire and all the other stuff. Somehow find a way to save myself. That's what would be running through my mind. But Christ's reaction is merciful. Because Christ loves mercy. And is merciful to the people who would torture him. And then we come to the third commandment. Walk humbly. I, I once heard a very compelling, and I thought very fitting definition of humility. Um, that someone said to me, it's actually originally a quote by C.S. Lewis. The great theologian and um, story writer and apologist of the 20th, 20th century. One of them. And he had a quote that said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So what he means by that is humility is not like kicking myself in the ribs, trying to create some sense of I am nothing, worthless, just terrible human being. That's not humility. Humility is what I think pops up in your, in your head like the minute you wake up to a certain degree. Like, this is ultra-humility to me. What's the first thing you think about? I think if one is humble, like Christ is humble, the first thing you think about 
is other people. Probably God first, I would say, is the true mark of humility. The first thing that you do when you wake up is think, I have to get to prayer, or I have to get to scripture, or I have to slow myself down. I personally go to my phone. I'm bad at it. I'm not very good. Like, that's, I did this morning. I, I opened up Facebook. I opened up Instagram. I'm like, eh, what's going on today? That wasn't my first reaction. So to walk humbly in situations, we have to ask ourselves, what is good for the benefit of other people instead of what is good for the benefit of myself? Now, I'm not saying completely deprive yourself of your resources for the sake of other people. God calls some people to do that. Others, he does not. And that's okay. You have families. Please feed your families. But what I, what I am talking about is an orientation away from the self. Self-sacrifice for the other. And this is what Christ means when he calls him his people to be humble. That you as a church would turn away from yourselves individually and towards this community. And not only would you as a church just look insular to yourselves, but you would look out into the world and to your wider community, to the wider Wapakoneta area, and to the wider Alglaze County area and say, what do those people need? How can I help those people? In my time interning here, you guys have done, I've seen you do a fantastic job at it. But I think we always need stark reminders. So to wrap this up, because Julie told me I had to be short today. Um, <laughs> to wrap this up, I hope and pray, if nothing else you've heard, that you hear this. That God is not interested in intellectual knowledge of how much you know of Scripture. God is not interested in how many times you pray. I would even say God is not interested on how many Sundays you go to church. I'm going to qualify that in a second. Don't, don't stare daggers at me yet. But God is first interested in you. God is first interested in having you. And then all of the rest follows. but it first takes the graceful action of God to be interested in his people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you 
that you have been faithful to show up today. I thank you that you have been faithful to me, Lord, to bring me back among these people, to be refreshed and renewed by them, to see a people so filled with the Spirit that they care for each other, that they greet each other with warm smiles and firm handshakes and warm hugs each Sunday morning. And Lord, we ask as we go from this place that we would realize that you want us and nothing more. That we have nothing more to offer and nothing more difficult to offer than the totality of our whole lives to you, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that we are even able to do this because of your gracious action and that you came for us in the incarnation of your Son, that you sent him so that we might have an example of how to be truly human and how to have the ability to live a truly human life. In the name of the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Spirit, amen. Go in the knowledge that God only wants you, and that you are called to be a community that acts justly, loves mercy, and walks humbly with your God. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Wapak Nas podcast. We hope you are moved deeply to step into God and the hope and future he has for you, and that you are moved to be salt, light, and yeast in your community and to love people to Jesus.